0: Today, we're, we're going to review. That's why I said, you know, your minds are going to be a little boggled because we're going to review the whole book of Genesis in this one hour. <laughs> and we're not only just going to review the whole book of Genesis, we're going to go into the 15, first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus because that's where we left off in May. Okay, so the fancy, I have a really fancy title for this lesson. You ready for it? It's called Review. Review. Now, the episode that serves as our launching pad for this entire study, Finding Christ in the Old Testament, is the Lord's unrecorded Emmaus Road spiritual heartburn sermon. Wow, that's a mouthful, isn't it? You know, the day of resurrection, Sunday afternoon, Jesus came alongside two of his very despondent disciples as they were journeying from Jerusalem. They had their backs to Jerusalem resurrection Sunday afternoon and their backs were to Jerusalem. And they were headed home to their village of Emmaus, which was about seven miles northwest. And even though those two disciples, not apostles, but disciples, you know, the Lord had many disciples. Even though that very morning they had heard about the reports of the women who had gone out to the tomb and discovered it was empty and came back and told told all the men. And they had also heard the reports of Peter and John and they had heard about angels proclaiming that Christ had risen from the dead, yet they were returning to their former lives, pre-Jesus lives, their lives before they ever met this wonderful man named Jesus. You know why they had their backs to Jerusalem? It was because they simply could not Hurdle the stumbling block of his crucifixion. The man they truly had thought was Israel's Messiah was put to open shame by the cursed death of hanging on a tree. Therefore, they could only conclude they must have been wrong about him. They must have been wrong. I mean, why would God allow the true deliverer, the true Messiah, the promised seed of the woman to die, suffer and die by a way that he himself, that God himself had said was cursed. It says in the book of Deuteronomy, cursed is every man that hangeth on a tree. Now, you would have a problem with that, too, if you were in their sandals, wouldn't you? He couldn't possibly be the Messiah when he died a a cursed death. And even if they dismiss the manner in which he died, he was dead. They didn't believe the reports of those silly women, which is basically what they said. They didn't believe the reports that he was alive, and he was was dead. And a dead Messiah could not establish a kingdom. So they're going home, and they're very, very troubled. So their new traveling companion, who is incognito, he is not letting them know who he is. It's resurrected Christ. He comes alongside and he asks them, why are you guys so down in the dumps? And they explain to him the, the reason, you know, the reason for why they are so sad. And then he must have shocked the socks off of them because here was this kind, kind of naive man who said, what was going on? How could anybody not know what had happened the past three days? Everybody in Jerusalem knew about Jesus and the crucifixion, etc. So they thought, this really nice guy, you know, he's kind of ignorant about matters. But all of a sudden he says, Oh, fools! (laughs) And slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ have suffered and died before he enters into his glory? Ought not means it was mandatory they should have known from their own scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, that it was mandatory for the Christ to suffer death before entering into his glory. So beginning at Moses and the prophets, which includes basically the whole Old Testament, he proceeded to show them how the suffering and the death of the promised Savior, the promised Redeemer, redeemer was taught in a variety of ways from Genesis to Malachi ways like prophecies ways like types pictures such as when Abraham suffered Isaac pictures like the Passover lamb he showed them all these different ways and of course there was other ways too sacrifices all the sacrifices of the old testament pointed to the fact that the coming redeemer would be sacrificed he would shed his blood and die so that's what he did now he and he started with the books of Moses what are the books of Moses the first the five the Pentateuch the first five books Genesis Exodus Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy because he started at the book of beginnings the book of origins that's naturally where we studied i started our study and in this sermon I would have loved to have heard it wouldn't you If I, I told you before, if I could pick one place, if I had a time machine and I could go back in time before smartphones and technology and PowerPoint, I would go back and join them on the road to Emmaus because I would have loved to have heard that sermon. I would have, now I know he didn't take as long as we're taking because he did it in seven miles. (laughs) He must have really just highlighted things. But we're already on our third year, and we're still, well, we're just in the beginning of Exodus. So that's why I said it's going to take me the rest of my life, but it's well worth it. We're not only just in the Old Testament, because like next time we meet with this Bible conference thing, we're going to talk about manna. So the first hour, we'll talk about what happened with the manna in the wilderness. And then the second hour, we're going to be in the New Testament talking about, you know, John chapter six, when Jesus said, I am the true manna, the manna that came down from heaven. So we're not just in the Old Testament. You know, we're going to be going all over the Scripture. But I would have loved to have heard that sermon because when he was through showing those two disciples all the places in the Old Testament that he is and that he was pictured by, what did they say to one another? Did not our heart burn within us? And that's what happens when you see Christ in the Old Testament. Doesn't your heart burn within you? I mean, it just solidifies your faith. It does with me. And he is in so many places. Remember the Aleph and the Tavi? he's just everywhere. So that's where we started is the book of origins. And, of course, the first thing we found was the creation account. You open up your Bible and what do you read? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you believe that? Yeah, I hope so, because it's true. It's true. Evolution is a lie did you know i was just i'm gonna get sidetracked and i'll never get finished but i was just reading that charles darwin you know he kind of denied his own theory at the end of his life but he was raised in the unitarian church did you know that yeah his mother suki what a name Suki uh, took him to the Unitarian church and he got very close with the pastor who was also his school teacher. And, you know, Unitarianism believes that Jesus is not God. They do not believe in the inspired word of God, that it's God's word. Uh, they don't believe in the Trinity and they basically believe everybody's okay and everybody, that's why it's Unitarian, everybody's going to go to heaven. So that's how he was raised. You see the, the influence of a mother on a child, how important that is? Because that theory has done so much damage to this world. Anyway, it's not true. It's a lie. It's a lie. But anyhow, the first thing we find when we open our Bibles is the creation account. And we find how a very good, perfect universe was spoken into existence by Elohim. Elohim is the name for God that is used throughout the creation account. It is a uni proper name. uni you know, whenever there is an IM on the end of a Jewish word, it's like plural. You know, it's like adding an S or an ES to one of our English words. So the subject is plural, but Elohim is always used with a singular verb. You know, like a verb you would use for a singular subject. Isn't that interesting? What does that tell us? That yes, indeed, our God is one God, but three persons. And didn't he say, let us make man in our image at the Tower of Babel. Let us come down. He's one God, but within the Godhead, three persons and all three were involved in creation. You know, in the beginning, God, that's God, the father. And it says that the spirit of God moved across the face of the waters. That's the Holy Spirit. And then we know in Colossians, of course, there was a light. That's Jesus. But in Colossians. We're told that Jesus Christ created everything. And it was all created by him. So all three were involved in creation. Well, when we discussed this, we talked about how the physical universe created by Elohim not only declares his glory, but it's also a reflection of him. It is the universe around us is a great trinity of trinities. Have you realized that? That makes sense if it was made by a triune God that he would make the universe to reflect himself. Our universe is a Trinity of trinities, and the rem- this truth may not prove the existence of a triune creator to unbelievers, you know, those who are just so blind, they don't want to see. you meet many of them. But it is certainly evidence to support the biblical revelation of a triune creator. Actually, it's very difficult to explain the many triunities of this universe any other way. It's not just coincidence. You're going to see what I'm talking about in a minute as I go through the days of creation. God's fingerprints are evident everywhere in his creative work. Now, on day one, day one, God created the triunity of space, time, and matter. You know you cannot have one of those without the other. You have to have all three at the same time. Space, time, and matter. There's your trinity. Now, space consists of another trinity. It consists of height, width, and depth time like space is a trinity because you have past present and future matter is found in three forms solid liquid and gas the basic element of everything in this universe is the atom what does the atom consist of protons neutrons and electrons right (laughs) you remember this from your science classes long time ago God also created on day one the triunity of light, form, and motion. Light, remember God said, let there be light. Light, form, and motion. And the triunity forces that are nuclear, gravitational, and electromagnetic. Those are the three forces. On day two, God made three areas regarding earth. The waters above the firmament... What's a firmament? A firmament is the atmosphere. It's another word for our atmosphere. So he put waters above the firmament, then the firmament itself, and, wa- and, and uh, waters below the firmament. That's three areas regarding earth. Then on day three, which is interesting, earth actually experienced sort of a resurrection day three. A resurrection because she resurrected from the waters that had had covered the entire planet. First, she was a blob of water. But on day three, land arose up out of the waters. And God completed making three fields of activity with regard to earth. He made the atmosphere, the seas, and the land. He finished that work of the atmosphere, the seas and the land. Now, there's a difference between the seas and the land because the land resurrected, day three. Interestingly, Earth's water also has three forms. Water can be, can be found as ice, solid ice, liquid, and what's the third? Vapor. Earth's rocks. Remember this from science class? Earth's rocks. There are only three types of rocks found on planet Earth. You have igneous, sedimentary, and very good. Okay, not only does the outside of earth consist of three parts, atmosphere, land, masses, and waters, but earth's inside also is divided in three parts, the mantle, the outer core, and the inner core. Then also on day three, God was busy on day three, he made three types of vegetation called in the Bible grasses, herbs, and fruit trees. Then on day four, after earth's third day resurrection from the waters, the focus went from earth to the heavens. Isn't that interesting when you think of resurrection? Third day from earth to heaven, the focus is on heaven. And God filled the sky with three celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Did you realize that that there was light before the sun? Let there be light was said, what, day one? But but God did not create the sun and the stars until day four. So all you people who try to, not you guys, (laughs) all you people out there who try to compromise creationism with evolutionism, you have a real problem. You do, because light existed before the sun. Of course it did. Who is the light of the world? (laughs) Jesus. Also, here's something interesting. Earth existed before the sun. You know, those who say the sun just kind of exploded and out came the planets. How do you explain that? So theistic evolutionism and progressive creationism don't work. I don't care how hard you try to compromise creation and evolution. You cannot do it. It is impossible. Well, where was I? Day four. The focus was up in the sky. And he also caused Earth, which interestingly is the third planet from the sun. Huh. You think that's just a dink? (laughs) Third planet from the sun. Uh, He caused it to simultaneously move in three ways. What does the earth do? Well, it spins on its axis. It also revolves around the sun. And then within the solar system, the whole solar system revolves around the Milky Way galaxy. And, you know, there you go. I get dizzy talking about it. Isn't it amazing we're not dizzy? Isn't it amazing we don't fall off? (laughs) especially when we're upside down, right? (laughs) I guess we're always upside down, aren't we? (laughs) And then on day five, God's creative work involved filling the seas, filling the seas and the air with three basic types of living creatures. And on day six, he occupied himself with filling the land with three basic types of living creatures. Cattle, which kind of like represents all the domestic animals creeping things i wish he had left that part out (laughs) and wild a beast of the earth so you have you know domestic and wild animals and creeping things and then on the latter half of the sixth day god created the apex of all his creation actually it's why this, this creature is why he created the universe to begin with. He was preparing a place for man to live. It's all about man. He is uniquely made in the image of God. Man is the only living creature who is a tripartite being. Because we consist of body, soul, and spirit. Now, angels are created beings, but they're lacking a body. They're just a spirit being. Animals are created beings, but they lack a soul. I'm sorry to tell you that. If your little puppy dog doesn't have a soul. <laughs> so man alone is tripartite, made in God's image. Three parts, one person. The sum of man's capabilities is stated as a combination Of thought, word, and deed. Also, there are three stages of existence for man. Three. Did you get that? If there were only two, it wouldn't fit with God's universe. There's three stages. Life, death, and what? Afterlife. So if you don't believe in an afterlife, you're missing the whole tripartite trinity thing, aren't you? God created three basic entities. All right? The inanimate physical Elements such as a rock or a tree, the animal world, and then humanity. Three basic, you know, inanimate, animals, man. Plants have unconscious life. Animals have conscious life, but only man has self-conscious life. We can think about it ourselves, can't we? Sometimes we do that too much. And we alone have the capacity for God consciousness. Man was given, you know, a perfect environment in which to live on planet Earth, which was perfect. And he was placed in the garden, and he was given by God Almighty Elohim one Torah, one law, which was for the divine purpose of allowing him to exercise his God-given free will. He could choose. Man could choose. You know, God didn't want robots to love him. Because real love isn't forced love, is it? Real love is reciprocated free will love. And so he, uh, man was given this Torah. What was the Torah? You can eat of every fruit tree you want. Everything here is for, for you to enjoy except that one a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So man could choose to reciprocate the love of his creator by his willing obedience of this one restriction, or he could choose to disobey by partaking of that which had been forbidden. He could embrace his will over God's will, which is called sin. It's called disobedience. And as we know, what did they do? Both Eve and Adam sinned. They chose to do their thing instead of God's thing. And the tragic record of history has testified to the truth that the wages of sin is destruction, decay, and death. And yet, before the parents of mankind were then driven from their Edenic sanctuary. I actually think of the Garden of Eden as the Holy of Holies of God's earthly tabernacle. He made the entire earth. It was perfect. It was good. It was actually, after he made woman, if you read it, it was very good. (laughs) I love that order. (laughs) Not making it up. It's in the Bible. And so God could roam over the whole planet, couldn't he? But I think that the the Garden of Eden was like the Holy of Holies of the whole tabernacle of earth. And he fellowshiped with man there, didn't he? There was no veil put between him and man. They had open fellowship. They walked with the pre-incarnate Christ in the in the cool of the afternoon. And they, they fell, they sinned, and they had to be driven from this Holy of Holies because otherwise they might eat of the tree of life and live forever in a fallen state. That would be no good. So it was God's mercy that drove them. Then there was a veil and there was cherubim guarding that veil. No one could enter into that holy of holies. But before he drove them out, he had a word of good news for them. It was the gospel in abbreviated form. Genesis 315. If you don't have that highlighted underlined, starred in your Bible, you should. It is a very important scripture. Theologically, it is known as the Proto Evangelium. That's Latin. Proto means first. It is God's first revelation of the evangelistic message. What is the evangelistic message? It's the promise of salvation in a savior. Promise seed with a capital S of a woman. Seed of a woman who would come and suffer because his bru his heel would be bruised but he would crush satan's head that would be a fatal blow you know to bruise the heel of a person is not fatal is it now he wasn't really a person he was god the god man so to bruise the heel of god almighty that is serious that is serious you know we think oh bruise of a heel that was nothing no it was very serious because of who he was he's god And yet it wasn't fatal because we know you can't keep the prince of life dead. (laughs) And so on the third day, he rose. But only Christ qualifies to be the promised seed of the woman because all other human beings are conceived by man's seed. Only men have sperm, right? Women don't have sperm. So he alone qualifies because Christ had no human father. He was born of a woman, a woman's seed. It was a miracle. A miracle conception. The birth, we always say virgin birth. There was nothing miraculous about his birth, but there was about his conception. Now, progressive revelation, which is what scripture is, you know, when you have a little child, a toddler, you don't teach that toddler algebra, do you? No, you start with basics and you usually start with picture books to teach a child. It's progressive revelation as they go through school they have more and more same thing with god with his children he started out genesis and exodus have more pictures it's like a picture book for for man because he was you know teaching children and starting from the beginning and then he would add more and more truth to the scripture so as progressive revelation you know the word of god was written more and more there were additional predictions about this seed of the woman this virgin conception for example isaiah seven fourteen says behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and she shall call his name what emmanuel god with us also, Jeremiah thirty one twenty two, which was a very puzzling scripture for the rabbis. They never really knew what to do with this verse and what it meant. But it says, the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. And they looked at that and what does that mean? A woman shall compass a man. You know, actually, Adam compassed a woman, didn't he? Because Eve was taken out of his side. So within Adam was woman. Well, this verse is saying that within a woman would be a man. And when we know when it was the fullness of time for the fulfillment of these prophecies, Galatians 4, 4 says that God sent forth his son made of a woman and Mary conceived uh, a man child. It says in, you know, we always at Christmas send this on Christmas cards. A lot of us, Isaiah 9, 6, which says, behold, unto us a child is born. Uh, Yeah, a child is born. Okay, that's easy. The child was born in Bethlehem. But then it says a son was given. A son was given. Think about that. That is telling us that the son of God is eternal. Eter- Some people don't believe in the eternal God, second person of the Trinity. But he, he, he lived in eternity past. There, he had no beginning. Because you cannot give a son who doesn't pre-exist. You can't give something that you don't already have. So that's an important little phrase. A son was given. And uh, Mary was told to name him Jesus. Well, back to the garden, the merciful pre-incarnate Christ followed his first gospel message, promise of Genesis 3.15, by preaching his first gospel sermon. You look there and you say, I don't see a sermon. Well, he didn't do it with words. He preached his first sermon by action. As God had said, if you eat of this tree... (laughs) ye shall what? Surely die. And uh, as he had said, something had to die. God in his mercy offered up a sin substitute for the sin of Adam and Eve. He killed an animal, which I believe was probably a lamb to, you know, make the picture of the true lamb. And he covered their naked shame their sin with the skin of that animal but that must have really shocked our first parents because they had never seen death before death is not pretty especially death where you slit an animal's throat and blood comes gushing forward And so that had to be very that was that was seeing the consequences of their disobedience in living color. Now, by killing an innocent animal, the Lord was teaching Adam the greatest truth for fallen man to know and to pass on to the next generation. What is that very important truth? Here it is. Sinful man can come before holy God. But not on his own self, not by way of his own self-efforts to cover his sin. Which is what they tried to do with fig leaves, isn't it? You know, every other religion besides Christianity is a fig leaf religion. It is. It's trying, you know, doing something to earn your own salvation. But if that was the case, what would heaven be full of? A bunch of boasters, right? I could get up there and say, well, I got here because I taught living word ladies Bible study. And then one of you could say, well, I taught Sunday school for 60 years. And then somebody else could come along and say, well, I was a missionary in Africa. You know, we'd be a bunch of boasters. How did you get here? Ha, that wasn't so great. (laughs) But he doesn't share his glory, does he? So it's not our works. It's it's by uh, Christ's work. The one way to approach holy God is through a perfectly innocent sin substitutionary sacrifice. And that's what all of the Old Testament sacrifices, the thousands and thousands of animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament, that's what they were prefiguring. They were anticipating the sin-substitutionary suffering and death of the woman's seed, the Savior, the Redeemer, who would be bruised by Satan, but not fatally. As I said, he would rise from the, death, the dead. His death and his shed blood would not merely cover sin. That's what all the sacrifices the Old Testament did. They temporarily covered sin, but they never cleansed sin. But when Christ came along, our kinsman redeemer, our savior, the true Passover lamb, the one redeemer between God and man, the one way into the father's presence, he was a once for all sacrifice that cleansed sin permanently right? Once for all, no more need for covering. And that was for all who put their faith in him as their sin substitute. That's why Jesus said to those two despondent disciples on the road to Emmaus, ought not the Christ to have suffered before entering into his glory? What's the answer to that? Yes. It was mandatory. It was truth that was taught in many ways, from the very beginning it shouldn't have upset them besides do you know how many times he predicted he would die and they never seemed to really they didn't like that part but they never really seemed to hear what he would say afterwards but on the third day I'll rise again now Abel's sacrifice you know Adam and Eve at first had two sons uh, Cain and Abel Abel's sacrifice was accepted by the Lord His brother Cain's was not. Why is that? Some people struggle with that. They say, well, that isn't fair. Why why did God not accept Cain's sacrifice? Well, it's really simple. It's because Abel did things God's way, didn't he? And Cain tried to do things his way. Well, I think this is a better way. I don't like all that blood, death and blood. So I'm just going to grow some wonderful fruit and put it up there on the altar and God will be really pleased with me. Well, God wasn't pleased. It's another fig leaf type of religion that Cain had, Cain's religion. But Abel's blood sacrifice was, in, was given in obedience. It was a demonstration of his faith in God's way of salvation by the promise of a savior who would one day also shed his blood. Now, the order that is given to us of seven men in the book of Genesis is very interesting. There's seven, you know, seven is another of God's favorite numbers besides three. Three represents the Trinity. Seven represents completion and perfection. In the book of Genesis, we have seven representative men and their lives kind of show us the progress of salvation and sanctification all the way to glorification and those seven men are adam abel noah abraham isaac jacob and joseph so first of all there is a day that a man realizes his absolute nakedness before holy god that he is a sinner you know poverty of spirit that he realizes he is a beggar That he is hopeless and helpless apart from God. He is naked before God. That's represented. That stage of salvation is represented by Adam. And then he realizes his need. To obey God's provided way of salvation. Through the shedding of blood of a sin sacrifice. Which is what Abel did. As the man then begins his Christian walk. He very soon realizes, wow, I am really different (laughs) from the rest of this world for having entered into the one way of safety from the wrath of God, from the deep waters of God's judgment on sin. We are a peculiar people. We are to be different from the world, aren't we? And who was really different from the whole rest of the world? The third man. Noah. Noah. Noah stood out. Everybody laughed at Noah. They thought he was crazy. Then we were different. We're peculiar. <laughs> we're uncommon. And we begin, I mean, we have a walk of faith. We, our lives are to be a walk of faith, such as Abraham. His, he didn't even know where he was going. He just was obeying God and just took out walking. And we enjoy our sonship in our walk with God. We enjoy the fact that we're sons of the king. We're sons. Like Isaac was the promised son of abraham the one who would carry on the lineage that would lead to the savior and while we're walking by faith and we're different and we're enjoying our sonship we also struggle with our old nature don't we in the book of genesis one man really had a battle with his old man and that was jacob he struggled and struggled and then hopefully all of this is leading to the fact that we're growing in Christ's likeness. We're growing so much in Christ's likeness that we are finding ourselves persecuted for righteousness' sake. Yea, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And that's and, and that's what happened in the life of Joseph. He was he suffered for righteousness' sake. But ultimately he was exalted. Which is, you know, one day we will all be exalted. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And he will lift you up. One day we will all be glorified. So do you follow that? Isn't that neat? It's in the right order, too, given in the scripture. Well, the momentous test of Adam and Eve was met with failure, as we all know. That one Torah was disobeyed. One was deceived. Adam, uh, Eve was deceived. But Adam was not deceived by Satan, he willfully chose to partake of the forbidden fruit for the sake of his wife, really. His temptation was Eve. He didn't have direct temptation from Satan, but his, he chose to remain with Eve. He chose Eve over God. And in doing that, it's complicated, but if you get the book, he was a picture of Christ who gave his life for his bride. It was a self-sacrifice. But in Adam's case, it was not a noble self-sacrifice. Anyway, I could go off on a tangent with that one, but we won't. So, th- But they met their test. They failed. They got a big F on their on their test. But that failure was the whole purpose for God's redemptive program. Do you think God knew ahead of time they were going to fail that test? Yeah, absolutely. Without the fall, you see... He planned all this in eternity past. Without the fall, neither man nor the watching holy angels would be able to praise God for his attributes of unconditional love to love a creature who doesn't love you back. That's unconditional love. And they would not be able to praise him and honor him and glorify him for his attribute of mercy. They'd say, what is mercy? I don't understand it. So he wouldn't be praised for mercy and grace and forgiveness. You understand God loves to be honored and glorified for his attributes. Now, there were some of his attributes like his great creative power, his might, his holiness that they could praise him for. But not these things you following me so far. Do this. okay? if you're not do this. (laughs) So God, sovereign God used evil for his own ultimate good purposes. This was true of both Satan's rebellion against him. Satan was once Lucifer, a holy angel, uh, and he rebelled against God saying, I will be like the most high. And this is also true of man's fall. God is, he specializes in using evil for his own good. Joseph understood that, remember? He said to his brothers, you meant it for evil when you persecuted me and threw me in the pit, but God meant it for good. Man was created sinless. Man was created innocent. He did not know evil. He knew good, but he did not know evil. He was innocent and sinless. But this is going to sound strange. Oops. He was not righteous. Man was not created righteous. Righteousness is sinlessness maintained in the presence of temptation. God knew ahead of time that Satan would use his one Torah, his one law to attempt to get man to join him in his rebellion against God. And he allowed it to happen. You say, how did Satan get in the garden? Could God have prevented Satan from getting into the garden? Absolutely. But he allowed it to happen. He did not initiate the temptation because God tempts no man to do evil. He didn't initiate the temptation of man, but he allowed it so that man could exercise his free will. Are you following me still? Uh, This is deep. This is the only stretch that'll be really deep. Then we'll get back into the fun. Okay, but hang on. If man chose to demonstrate his love for God by obedience in the face of temptation, get that? If man chose to demonstrate his love, how do we show our love for God? How do we do it? We obey. We obey him. We hear him and we obey him. That's how we demonstrate our love for him. So if man could choose to demonstrate, if he chose to demonstrate his love for God by obeying his one law in the face of temptation, then he would be declared righteous. But that didn't happen, did it? Adam failed to maintain his sinless state in the face of, as I said, in his case, indirect temptation. And subsequently, He lost his sinless condition. He lost his innocence. He now, unfortunately, had a knowledge of good and evil. Don't you wish sometimes you didn't have a knowledge of evil? Yeah. (laughs) And he could not be declared righteous. On the other hand, the last Adam, which is what Jesus is called in the scripture, the last Adam, Christ in his humanity he did fully resist all of Satan's direct and indirect temptations not only did he directly tempt him in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights but he indirectly tempted him his entire ministry remember that time after the feeding of the 5,000 when the people wanted to crown him king That was a great temptation because it was to crown him king without having to go to the cross. But he fully resisted every single temptation, so he maintained his eternal sinlessness even in a human body. And he also demonstrated his eternal divine righteousness. So when a person places faith in Christ, he or she moves positionally, From being in the first Adam, the head of the old creation, to being in Christ, who is the head of the new creation, the last Adam. They go positionally from the first Adam to the last Adam. You go from being under the condemnation of sin to being declared righteousness. We're not declared righteous because of our righteousness, though, are we? Our righteousness is as filthy rags. We are declared righteous because we're in Christ and we receive his righteousness. God sees us covered with the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that a wonderful exchange? Our sins for his righteousness. Why would anybody turn that down? I don't know. First time I heard it, I said, that's too good to be true. <laughs> so now think about this. This is the last deep thing here okay but the created sonship and image of god in adam you know he was a created son adam was he was made in the image of god and he was created but that state of adam is far far exceeded by the eternal sonship and image of god that is Christ. You think the image of God in Christ is a little bit greater than image of God in Adam? Yes, Christ is the express image of God. He is very son of the living God. And so that eternal sonship and image of God that is in Christ is also in our, is ours through Christ. When we receive Christ and become a Christian, we become adopted sons, daughters of God and sons of the king we're not just created sons we are adopted sons we become like Christ don't when we see him we will be like him and the apostle Paul got that he understood that in fact he rejoiced over that that sonship gained in Christ far far exceeds what was lost in Adam So you see what happened with the fall turned out to ultimately be better for us. I mean, if Adam had not, if he um, had not fallen, uh, I guess we would live forever in these. I don't want to live forever in this body, even if it didn't decay and get old. But because he fell, God made the way for us to have a new glorified body. Now, I think I would much rather live in a glorified body that wasn't limited to the gravitational pull of earth and all that (laughs) so you see how god used evil for his ultimate good purposes and he had all of this planned since the arrival and work of the redeemer was the key to god's overall plan for redemption satan's goal you know satan was there when he heard the proto evangelium that his head would be crushed by the seed of the woman and he figured out who the seed of the woman was going to be because christ was his creator and he had known all about the son of god back in heaven before he fell lucifer is not the brother of jesus as the mormons teach they're not brothers christ is the creator of lucifer well, he knew that Christ was going to be the one who would come and bruise his head, which was to crush his head. And so his whole goal became the prevention of his arrival. Since Genesis 3.15 doesn't state which woman would do, would bear the ultimate seed, the Savior, Satan was left guessing. He didn't know. You know, when Eve had Abel, and he turned out to be a nicer guy than Cain, she thought he was maybe the Savior, and I think maybe Satan also thought that because they just didn't know. And so that's why he used Cain to kill his brother abel and the whole old testament is about satan you know the war between god and satan satan is constantly trying to destroy the line the lineage as progressive revelation tells us it will be through abraham isaac jacob you know uh, judah and so on down through david he's always destroying trying to destroy that line so the savior couldn't come Well, the evil begun in Eden was flagrantly displayed when Cain's rebellion of doing things his way rather than God's way led to fratricide. So Cain killed his own brother. And then soon, soon after that, a proud godless society developed with demonic assistance. Just read the first few verses of Genesis chapter 6. You know, the sons of God and the daughters of man. So pretty soon... The whole world was corrupt. The days before Noah were very, very evil. Very evil. Is the world getting that way today? Yeah, as in the days of Noah, it would be right before the Lord's coming. The widespread extent of the wickedness and corruption that made it, ne- made it necessary, he kind of regretted ever making man. And so he, he found it necessary to purge the whole world with a global bath before every single member of the human race, including those of the promised lineage of the seed of the woman, was lost forever to the the kingdom of darkness. And as the only hope for the continuation of the godly seed of the woman, Noah, one righteous man, Noah, became the supreme target of satanic attacks. If the evil one could succeed in corrupting Noah, he would prove god incapable of keeping his genesis 3:15 promise so he satan and his wicked forces successfully managed to corrupt the whole rest of the world but noah <laughs> what a great man of faith you know in the hall of faith chapter of hebrews 11 he is the first one that his little epitaph about him begins and ends with the words by faith he's the only one noah he was a great man of faith He was the one Satan most desired to contaminate, and yet he resisted all of the temptations to quit. You can imagine building, taking that long to build a boat when you'd never even seen rain before. Boy, I'd have a lot of temptation to quit this project, (laughs) but he didn't. And uh, he was protected by the shield of God's grace. We're told that he walked with God. And there's only one other man in the Old Testament who is said to have walked with God. Who was that? Enoch, Enoch, right. He walked with God and was not. He walked so close to God that God just said, come up here. You don't have to die. Picture of the rapture of the church. I hope we live in the generation of the rapture, don't you? I don't really want to die. I would love to be translated. (laughs) But he, so he took Enoch, but Noah would serve God's purposes greater if he remained on earth. He would be the new representative Adam of the post-flood world. He is actually like the second Adam. Christ is the last Adam. Noah is the second Adam. Now, Noah was not only a man of great faith, but he was a man who bore great fruit. You say, you mean great fruit is seven people? Because he only got his family on the ark, didn't he? Seven people of his family. That doesn't seem too great to me. But he did bear great fruit. Because every one of us in this room is fruit from Adam's faith. Do you know that? Because here we go. Another trinity in unity. Another trinity in unity. All of us descend from one of Noah's three sons. Three sons. Not two. Not four. Three You get it? Another Trinity. And the Ark, the Ark, which is a picture of Christ, the Ark served as the only bridge from the old world, the pre-flood world, to the present world. Christ, like the Ark, is the only bridge. He is the only bridge connecting the otherwise impassable span Between sinful man and holy God. Christ is the only way to the father. He is the ladder. Remember Jacob's dream of the ladder to heaven and the top of the ladder was the gate to heaven. He is the ladder. Christ is the ladder to heaven. He is the only mediator between God and man. He is the one door to safety from God's wrath against sin. How many doors on the ark? only one he is the one remedy from the fatal venom of the viper satan remember the uh the brazen serpent lifted up on the pole which pictured christ we talked about that last year If you wonder how a serpent could picture christ is becoming is because he became the curse of sin for us But that only remedy from the from dying of the venom of the serpents, the vipers that bit the people in the wilderness was to look upon that pole raised up. And Jesus said that was him that represented his crucifixion and his work there. It says in scripture, neither is there salvation in any other name given among men whereby we must be saved. So if you talk to people and this is very popular today, like Unitarianism, talk to people who say, well, there's many ways to God. This just isn't true. The Bible does not teach that. If you believe the Bible, you have to say, no, I'm sorry, but there's only one truth. Which is not contrary to the rest of nature. There's only one mathematical answer for two plus two, right? Yeah, there's only one way. And God provided it in his son. And by the way, I'm going to throw this in for free. The ark, you know, is a picture of Christ. And actually, it's a picture of a gospel message. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat, Mount Ararat and the scripture says in Genesis 8, not sure if it's 8 2 or 8 4, it tells us the day, the calendar day, that the ark rested on Mount Ararat after the great flood. Now, why would God, the Holy Spirit, include the calendar date? Is that just so we know, or is it for a reason? Everything the Holy Spirit writes in the scripture is for a reason. So there's a reason he included that date. The date turns out to be Nisan 17. Nisan 17. Hmm, what else happened on that day? Uh Aha, the resurrection. You know, the Passover lambs were to be slain on Nisan. Nisan is the name of a Jewish month. It used to be called Aviv. So if you read Genesis 8 and you say, Catherine, you're wrong, it's Aviv. Well, Aviv's name was later changed to Nisan. It's the same name. But the Passover lambs were slain on the 14th of Nisan. Three days later, Jesus was killed on Nisan 14, Passover. And three days later, he resurrected from the dead. You see, he, like the ark, passed through for us. He passed through the deep waters of judgment. God's wrath against sin uh, before standing in resurrected glory before his followers and saying to them, peace be unto you. I think a lot of people don't know that, but it's fascinating, isn't it? Don't you want to share that with your children and your grandchildren and your husbands and your friends? That the ark came to rest on Eret the very same day that Christ resurrected. That's not coincidence. Again, it's a picture that God was giving. Well, later, after man's united rebellion at Babel, remember the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 and the subsequent origin of the nations and the languages? And by the way, I'm going to just take a footnote break here again. You know, we have a lot going on in our world today, and there's a lot of conversation. That's what they like to call it. Let's have a conversation. You hear that on the news all the time. Let's have a conversation. I say, let's not. I'm tired of your conversations. But there's a lot of talk about uh, globalism today and uh, putting down people who are proud of their nations. You know, nationalism, nationalism versus globalism. And you might get to thinking, well, yeah, if we're Christians, we should accept everybody. And of course we should. (laughs) The real unity is in Christ, isn't it? But I ask you this question, (laughs) Who? made the nations of Genesis chapter 10. Who made them? Yeah, God made the nations. Okay, who was behind the one world government of Babel? And who will be behind a one world government during the days of the tribulation? The Antichrist backed up by Satan. So there's the answer to your question. It doesn't take a rocket scientist if you're a Christian to figure out which side of that you should be on. All right, that was for free again. So after the, uh, and how many nations were there? Anybody remember how many nations God created um, in Genesis 10? 70, very good, Judy, 70. Well, after that, he initiated something new God did in his plan with man. Now, this wasn't something new to him because it was all predetermined in eternity past, but it was new in operation. He called out one man for the purpose of preparing one nation to come from that man. And that nation would be the 71st nation. You know, the Sanhedrin council, the ruling council of Israel, consisted of 70 religious rulers and one who was the high priest. Remember, Jesus sent out 70 disciples, and he was the 71st. The 71st. Okay, so Israel was the 71st nation, came from Abraham. She was to function sort of like the, the high priest of the world. She was to be the witness of Yahweh to the rest of the world. And that's why I'll show you in a minute when I get to another uh, slide up here. What do you call them? PowerPoint slide or something? I'm just going to say slide picture Um, that that God Israel is in the belly button of the world masses of the earth. If you look at all the world masses and you use a compass or whatever, you get to the middle and there's where Israel is. So if he's going to use her to witness to the rest of the world as like a high priest sort of thing, you'd put her in the middle and that's exactly where she's located. Anyway, he's going to call out one man and bring from that man's seed a new nation. And that man's seed would also, of course, carry on the messianic lineage. Ironically, the man was a Gentile. I always love to point that out. (laughs) the Jews came from a Gentile named Abram. He came from Ur of the Chaldees. Oh my goodness, he was Iranian. He was an Iranian Gentile. How's that? (laughs) And also, ironically, he was named Abram. His name was later changed to Abraham. You know what Abram means? Exalted father. What does Abraham mean? Father of multitudes. Why is that ironic? Because the poor man didn't have any kids, so he must have been teased about that name. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> father of multitudes. You got to be kidding. Your wife is barren, and then she's postmenopausal. <clears throat> You're never going to have kids. And finally, when he was a hundred years old, what happened? A miracle, another miraculous. It wasn't virgin conception, but it was a miraculous miraculous conception because Sarah had a child. And he would carry on the seed of the woman lineage. Who was it? Ishmael, the son of Hagar? No, it was Isaac, Isaac. Now, another another of scripture's triunities is found in the three basic beginnings. We have the beginning of the human race in Adam. Then we have the beginning of the post-Diluvian world. That means post-flood world in Noah. That was another beginning. OK, first of all, in Adam, then in Noah. And then we have the beginning of the nation of Israel in Abram, Abraham. And I think it would be difficult to imagine that the Lord did not mention Abraham in his spiritual heartburn sermon to the two despondent disciples. Don't you think he would have absolutely talked about Abraham? He likely taught How the promises, the blessings, and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant center on himself. Do they? Is the Abrahamic covenant. Remember when he said that I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Is it a good thing for the United States to stay on the side of Israel? You better believe it. You better believe it. If you don't like Donald Trump, that's your business. But one thing I really like about that man is that Israel loves him. He is on the side of Israel. And that's where we're safe because blessed is those who bless Israel. And also, who is the, the land promised to? The sons of Ishmael? The sons of Esau? No. The sons of Isaac and Jacob. Remember that. For all the hollering you hear about the Palestinians, that land does not belong to them by God's decree. So I am sure he talked about the Abrahamic covenant and I'm sure he he spoke of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his only beloved son, Isaac, because that is one of the clearest pictures of the Lord's actual sacrifice in the same place. Where did was Abraham to take Isaac to slay him? Mount Moriah same mountain range where Jesus was crucified I call Isaac an almost sacrifice because of course God never planned for Abraham to go through with it he just wanted to see if he was willing to obey him at all costs and he was wasn't he and Isaac that dear boy and he was a man he was probably 33 years of age at that time he carried his own wood for his old dad he willingly laid down his life didn't he just like Jesus But he was an almost sacrifice because there was an animal sacrifice ready right there. Both Isaac and the ram picture the Lord Jesus Christ who was the actual sacrifice. And perhaps the Lord explained to those disciples on the road to Emmaus how Abraham, who had lived 2,000 years earlier, had rejoiced to see his day. And he saw it and was glad. And you remember when he said to the religious rulers, before Abraham was, I am. And it sent them into a wild frenzy, a tizzy, and they wanted to kill him right there. How in the world could you say that? Well, Abraham did rejoice to see Christ's day. You see, Abraham was pretty bright. He understood the basics of the gospel. He got it. Okay, God, you promised me a son. And you said it wasn't Ishmael, the son of the, uh, of the slave woman, that it would be Sarah. So it's, it's uh, Isaac. And I waited 100 years to have this boy. And now you're telling me to kill him? That doesn't make any sense. What would you do? Well, he went ahead with it because you know what he believed. He believed so strongly in God's promises that he knew if he killed his son, he would raise from the dead. He actually believed that. So he did see, he understood, not like you and I, not with a clarity that we see the gospel, but Abraham understood the basic gospel message. And that's not made up because Paul tells us that was true. Paul says the gospel was preached to Abraham. Abraham when he uh, learned that all nations would be blessed through him, through his seed, because he understood the seed was the Savior. And Paul stresses that the seed is Christ. So what this tells us is that the gospel is not a New Testament phenomenon. The gospel did not begin on Resurrection Sunday, did it? It was taught all along. Ought not Christ to have suffered and died? So it's always been by faith by a person's faith in the promised redeemer, the woman's seed, that he would be declared righteous by God. Now, Abraham's call was a call of God's grace for the entire world, not just for him, the entire world, because the savior of the entire world was to come from him. And it would be crucial for the people of God's new nation to be kept distinct from all the other nations and peoples of the worlds of the world, which had turned almost entirely to the religion that was begun at Babel, mystery Babylon religion. You know, the religions of the world all have their origin with Babel, and that mystery religion that began. With a false trinity of Nimrod, who was the builder of the tower, and his wife, Semiramis, called herself the queen of heaven, and her supposedly miraculous son, who rose from the dead, named Tammuz. You know, their names are in the Bible. So if you've never heard of that, we discussed all that too. But all religions really stem from there, and God's going to deal with them during the tribulation. It's called the Babylon mystery religion and so he wanted to keep his people separate from all the rest of the world and their mystery Babylon religion and all their false gods and goddesses and that's why he gave the Jewish people in the book of Leviticus so many rules and regulations it just makes your head spin we're probably going to skip over most of that if we ever get there because it's boring (laughs) boring you know you can't eat a animal with hooves and you can't do this and all that but that was all about keeping his people separate from the world they needed to be kept separate so they wouldn't amalgamate you know and intermarry with and just be lost it was all it was god's design to keep them separate well in genesis we find therefore and there's that map you can you see the little red circle There, there it is there's Israel. I know it's really faint. But if you go from here to here and here to here, it's in the center. It's in the center of the world. So in, in Genesis, we find the gospel is presented in three, three major pictures. There's the gospel of Eden. In Genesis 3.15, where man first learned of a coming, miraculously conceived Savior who would conquer Satan and his horrific tools of destruction, which are sin and death. There's the gospel of Eden. Then there is the gospel of Ararat, which taught the wages of sin is death. And the only way to safety from God's wrath against sin is to enter by faith into the ark by way of the one door, which is Christ. Then there's the Gospel of Moriah, the Gospel presented when Isaac went to sacrifice his son, um, I mean, Abraham went to sacrifice his son Isaac. So, three Gospel pictures in the book of Genesis. Genesis ended with Abraham's descendants out of the land because his great grandsons, through Isaac's son Jacob, were in danger. Those were some bad dudes. At least 10 of those 12 sons were not very nice guys, were they? We talked about them at length. They were really bad sinners, and they were in danger of being more influenced by the Canaanites than they were influencing the Canaanites. It's like, you know, the church is to be an influence on the world. The world is not to be an influence on the church. And what do we have going on today? You answer that question. I know where I stand on that. But that's what was happening. So God had to remove Jacob's family from the influence of the Canaanites. And he used Joseph to get them into the womb of Egypt. In trying to imagine what the Lord would have included about himself From the book of beginnings, from Genesis, a subject he surely must have highlighted, talking to those guys on the road to Emmaus, would have been the life of Joseph. Joseph, probably the greatest figure type of Christ in the Bible. Moses is right behind him, but Joseph probably takes the cake. Not only in character, but in his life circumstances. So I'm sure Jesus highlighted the life of Joseph. Would Joseph's life circumstances have reinforced the Lord's words about having the Christ had to suffer before entering into his glory? Would the life of Joseph help the Emmaus Road disciples hurdle the stumbling block of Jesus having been rejected by his own brethren, the Jews? The Jews rejected him, didn't they? Well, was Joseph rejected by his own brethren? Yes. Was not God's first chosen deliverer, and Joseph was the first deliverer. He delivered Israel out of Canaan, brought her safe into Egypt. Would his life not help the disciples understand the, the hatred that the Jews had toward Jesus, and the envy, and the rejection, and the betrayal, and the fact that they sold him for pieces of silver, and they stripped him, and they lied about him, saying he was dead when he really wasn't? was not that Joseph's life, picturing the Lord's? Was Joseph not first put to shame and humiliation before he was exalted did he not first suffer in a pit and then in a prison before he was raised to the right hand of power he was second only to pharaoh he became the vizier of egypt didn't he did he not suffer for righteousness sake before he entered into his glory what's the answer to all those yes So I'm sure in his Emmaus Road heartburn sermon that he talked about the life of Joseph. And when we did, we gave 82 examples of ways that Joseph was a picture of Jesus. If you want to get the book, we have all 82 ways listed there. At almost any point, his life portrays the life and uh, personality and character of Christ. And there's that great scene in chapter 45 when finally his brothers recognize who he is, he reveals himself to them, they bow down before him, and all of and he forgives them, doesn't he? And all of that is a picture of what will happen one day when Israel will look upon him whom she pierced and mourn for him as an only son. She will bow before him, and he will do what? He will forgive her. He will readily forgive her. For what she did, and all Israel will be saved. Is God finished with Israel? No. Don't go with replacement theology. He's not finished with Israel. Well, Joseph is the link that connects Genesis with Exodus. His life explains why Jacob's Bedouin family of 70 people, how many? 70 people in Jacob's family left Canaan and came into Egypt. Joseph was already there, so he was the 71st. You see how all this stuff is repeated over and over again? His life explains why Jacob's family wound up in Egypt. You you know, if you didn't have Genesis, you'd say, why are they in Egypt? How'd they get there? And they they remain there until God sends his second deliverer, Moses, to get them out of the womb of Egypt. They go through a lot of labor pains before they're out of that womb. Why would God send his little tiny people? There wasn't even a nation yet. They were a bunch of tribes. But why would he send them into Egypt of all places? Why? I'll tell you why. It's because Egypt, the Egyptians were extremely prejudiced people. They not only did not like foreigners, they thought they were a superior people. That they came from the gods, but other people were just, ugh. And who did they particularly despise? Shepherds, you got it. So God sent them to Egypt because he knew the prejudice of the Egyptians would keep her isolated and insulated from the pagan culture around her. And, of course, thanks to God's providence in Egypt, you know, Pharaoh... The good Pharaoh, Joseph's Pharaoh, was very kind. He let Jacob's fam- uh, Joseph's family dwell in the best land of Goshen. And there they waxed exceeding great. They became the great nation that God said they would become. Not great in quality, but great in number. <laughs> because they went into Egypt, how many? Seventy. And by the time Moses was sent to deliver them out of Egypt, they were over two million. Two million. People. So uh, that's where we're going to pick up in the second hour.